0: Saturday. Over the last couple of weeks of June, the U.S. Supreme Court released a whole series of decisions that relate in one way or another to topics we have covered on the show, issues we've talked about on the podcast. One of the last ones was in West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency, and this was a case about whether the Clean Air Act gave the Environmental Protection Agency the authority to set emissions caps based on the generation-shifting approach. That is, shifting power generation to cleaner sources of energy than things like burning coal, Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that it did not.
1: Leading up to, and after this decision, imagery from the Cuyahoga River was all over social media and in mainstream news reporting, as people used the Cuyahoga River as an example of a world without environmental regulations. We did an episode on the Cuyahoga River and the times that it caught fire. That episode came out on June 19th, 2017. And we talked in that episode about how the river came to be a symbol in the environmental movement. So we are bringing that out as our Saturday Classic today.
0: Yeah, I felt like every time I looked at Twitter, there was another picture of the river on fire. Yep. <laughs> so here's the context on that. Enjoy.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production
0: of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today, we are going to talk about an event that became a really huge symbol in the environmental movement, and it's often credited with helping to pass the Clean Water Act and inspire the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, but like a lot of the things that we talk about on the show, the actual story is way more complicated than that, and the whole thing is often portrayed in a way that has a lot of inaccuracies. In 1969, the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, Ohio, caught fire. This was not for the first time. It was, in fact, for the last time, but for the people who have heard of this fire, the image that probably came to your mind is not from this fire at all. It's from a completely different one. And as we mentioned before the episode,
1: the image that comes to mind for me is R.E.M. singing about Cuyahoga. <laughs> <laughs> Which has nothing to, you know, and no no historical significance other than it was a great song.
0: I don't even know it. So maybe after we record, I will go look it up. There you go. Cleveland, Ohio, sits on the shore
1: of Lake Erie along a very twisty part of the Cuyahoga River, which empties into the lake. And there are a couple of different theories about where the river's name comes from, either a Mohawk word for crooked or a Seneca name meaning place of the jawbone. And sometimes these are also conflated and described as being a Seneca word for crooked.
0: Yeah, I found that a lot of times before I found this thing that spelled it out completely differently. Centuries before the establishment of Cleveland, the Cuyahoga River Valley was home to several indigenous cultures, beginning with prehistoric nomadic peoples who came into the area roughly 13,000 years ago. Later, the River Valley's prehistoric inhabitants also included peoples from the mound-building Hopewell culture, followed by what's known as the Whittlesey people.
1: What we know of these cultures comes from the archaeological record, so we don't know their actual name. Hopewell comes from Mordecai Hopewell, who owned the land that was home to a series of their mounds. Whittlesey is named for geologist and archaeologist Charles Whittlesey.
0: Cleveland was established on part of the Connecticut Western Reserve. This was land in the Northwest Territory that was claimed by Connecticut. Although the Seneca likely used parts of the Western Reserve as a hunting ground, The area that became Cleveland doesn't appear to have had a permanent population in the decades just before its founding. That changed when Moses Cleveland surveyed and mapped the Connecticut Land Company's Western Reserve holdings. Cleveland was the first settlement that was established after this survey, which was completed in 1796.
1: The population of the newly established Cleveland grew very, very slowly. Although the immediate area wasn't permanently inhabited, other parts of what would become the state of Ohio were. People were reluctant to move to the area out of fear of attacks by the indigenous population. And until the 1820s, it was also hard to get to thanks to a lack of roads or other transportation options. Eventually, steamboats on Lake Erie, roads, railroads, and the construction of the Ohio and Erie Canalway made it more accessible.
0: As Cleveland grew, it became an important industrial center in the United States. Standard Oil Company, which is still a recognizable name, was established by John D. Rockefeller, and it was founded there around 1870. Steel mills became a huge part of Cleveland's economy and also one of the major employers, with almost 30% of the city's population working in the steel industry by 1880.
1: These industries and the city itself grew up in a time when there wasn't a lot of regulation about how to handle waste. Sewage emptied into the river, as did industrial waste and runoff. The water became so dirty that if you fell into it, you went to the hospital when you got out again. This wasn't remotely unique to Cleveland, and to a lot of people, a river that was obviously visibly filthy was a necessary trade-off for all of the industry that was bringing money into the city.
0: Cleveland's population peaked in 1950 at nearly a million people. But then, as was the case for many other industrial cities in the United States, the industrial sector started to decline. Between 1952 and 1969, the city lost 60,000 manufacturing jobs, and that industrial decline brought along with it a loss of jobs, an increase in abandoned industrial property along the waterfront, a higher crime rate, and a range of other social and economic issues. As the city center became increasingly run down, anyone who could afford to move to the newer suburbs did, and that compounded all of these issues.
1: Running alongside this was an increase in racism and racial tensions in Cleveland. The city had experienced the same demographic shifts as many other major cities. After the Civil War and the end of Reconstruction, African Americans had moved to Cleveland and other cities from the Deep South seeking work in factories and trying to escape oppressive Jim Crow laws.
0: But Cleveland's white citizens had then started moving out of the neighborhoods that were becoming home to Black families in a pattern that's commonly known as white flight. Since middle-class white families were moving out of neighborhoods as lower-income Black families moved in, The tax base for these neighborhoods dropped dramatically, which led to a corresponding decline in all of the systems and services that are funded by taxes.
1: And even though segregation and discrimination weren't as legally codified in Ohio as they were in much of the South, they still existed. Racism and racial bias in policing and housing created a lot of the same disparities in Cleveland as Jim Crow laws did elsewhere. The Supreme Court would eventually rule that Cleveland schools were segregated by race, even though that racial segregation was not spelled out in law.
0: All of this culminated in the Huff riots of July 1966. It's unclear exactly what sparked that riot, but the most commonly cited account is that white restaurant owners in the predominantly Black neighborhood of Huff refused to give a Black customer a glass of water, and then they hung a sign in the window that read, no water for N-words. A crowd of mostly Black protesters gathered outside the restaurant, and after police arrived to try to disperse the crowd, the situation escalated from an angry mob throwing rocks to a six-day riot that involved looting, arson, and the deployment of the Ohio National Guard. Four people were actually killed in this riot, and all of them were Black. This incident
1: is often cited as contributing to the election of Carl Stokes as Cleveland's mayor in 1967. It was his second attempt at running for mayor, having lost in 1965. He was the first black mayor of a major U.S. city, and a number of historians suggest that his election was in part out of a desire for stability and unity in a city that was really struggling.
0: Stokes' platform during the election focused on jobs, housing, and an attempt to revitalize the city. But because this fire that we're going to talk about happened during his time in office, he wound up becoming a really prominent figure in a completely different movement. And we'll talk about that more after a sponsor break.
1: that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to 7 times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com/papertarian.
0: On June 22nd, 1969, sparks from a train passing over one of the trestles that crossed the Cuyahoga River ignited oil that had collected on its surface, and the resulting fire was pretty visually dramatic. It reached about five stories tall. Firefighters extinguished the blaze within 20 or 30 minutes, but not before it damaged two rail trestles, one belonging to Norfolk and Western Railroad and the other to Newburgh and South Shore. Estimates on how much the damage cost to repair them varies from between $50,000 and $100,000, depending on who you ask. The city of
1: Cleveland was not particularly traumatized by the burning river. It was not the first time that it had caught fire. The Cuyahoga had burned at least 13 times over the previous 100 years. The most recent fire before the one in 1969 had occurred in 1952, and it had been far more destructive, leading to about $1.3 million in damages, including the dry docks of the Great Lakes Towing Company and multiple tugboats. It had nearly reached the standard oil refinery, which could have been utterly catastrophic. The river's deadliest fire, which caused five deaths, had happened in 1912.
0: To be clear here, the Cuyahoga River is by far not the only river in the world to have ever caught fire. Just as examples, other Great Lakes tributaries did during the 19th and early 20th centuries as well, including the Chicago and Buffalo Rivers. And this also still happens As just one other example, Uh, India's Belender Lake has caught fire more than once this year, which is 2017. And of course, there are also lots of other pollutants that can be in the water and be dangerous in ways that don't involve setting on fire.
1: By 1969, the city of Cleveland simultaneously shrugged off river fires and viewed them as a threat. When the river caught fire, it wasn't met with a lot of public fanfare or panic, but there was an increasing awareness of the need to clean up the river. That need, though, was driven by the risk of fire damage, not really a desire to clean the river for its own sake. Air pollution, which could easily spread to the more distant suburbs, got a lot more attention in terms of general pollution cleanup.
0: The flammable river was also a problem that Cleveland was actively working on. Cleveland's voters had approved a $100 million bond initiative in 1968, so just the year before and that was aimed at cleaning up one of the big sources of pollution, which was untreated human waste. This situation was particularly bad when heavy rains would cause the sewer system to overflow, and the bond initiative was meant to upgrade existing facilities, add new sewer lines, and build a new sewage treatment plant. Ben Stefanski, who was Cleveland's director of public utilities, was the driving force behind this bond and a big advocate for getting the public's support both for the initiative itself and for the taxes that would be necessary to fund it.
1: In the days immediately after the fire, local news coverage and local discussion of what had happened was mostly focused on the damage and who should pay to repair it. Because firefighters extinguished the blaze so quickly, photographers didn't get to the scene in time to get a picture of the fire in progress. When the Cleveland Press and the Cleveland Plain Dealer went to press the next day, They did so with photos of the damaged railroad trestles, not of the fire itself. And the press ran photos without a story, while the plane dealer published a brief story as well, but all the way back on page 11C. So to Cleveland in 1969, the river catching fire was not anywhere near front page news. The much worse 1952 fire that we mentioned a little while ago, on the other hand, had been.
0: The political back and forth that followed, which was also reported in the local media, focused mostly on the damage and the blame. Stefanski placed the blame on the state, saying that it was uh, issuing industrial permits that allowed the dumping of industrial waste into the river. Then the state countered that it was the city's failing sewer system, the one that had been targeted to be upgraded with this bond initiative, that needed to take the blame for a lot of the oil in the water. The city then accused the state of failing to match the bond funds with funds of its own to help with this project.
1: After a while, the local media got tired of reporting on all of this back and forth. An editorial that ran in The Plain Dealer about two weeks after the fire read, quote, bickering between Cleveland and the state over who bears responsibility for the condition of the Cuyahoga, a stream so polluted it catches fire from time to time, will not improve the quality of the filthy stream.
0: All of this discussion was really pretty local. There was little to nothing in the national media until Time Magazine published a story on river pollution in August of 1969. This story largely focused on the Cuyahoga River and it referenced the June 1969 fire. But because there were no pictures of that fire, Time used a picture from the much more serious 1952 fire. This is actually the picture of the fire that is on our website, for this episode, and although there are online versions of the article that exists today, with the photo clearly captioned as being from a different fire, the one that actually ran in time in 1969 just said, quote, boat caught in flaming Cuyahoga.
1: Suddenly, Cleveland and the Cuyahoga River were in the national spotlight as evidence of the dire state of the nation's polluted waterways, not just in Ohio, but elsewhere, too. More national coverage followed. In 1970, National Geographic's cover announced Our Ecological Crisis as the title, with pictures of the Cuyahoga, not at that time on fire, being part of a fold-out that accompanied the story.
0: The river at that point was still visibly incredibly filthy. And although retrospectives that are written today usually note correctly that the 1969 fire was the last and not the first, and they don't usually use an out-of-contact context picture with no explanation that it's really from an earlier fire in the 1970s and even 1980s a lot of the articles that evoked this fire were just sloppy they got key dates wrong they described the fire as something that stretched over miles of river when it was really pretty contained there were lots of other embellished details and they made it sound like the 1969 fire was both unique and a massive disaster rather than something that was appalling I mean, the river should not catch fire, but it was also contained, quickly extinguished, and was something that happened, as the newspaper said, from time to time. With all of
1: this inflated coverage, the 1969 fire took on an almost mythical aspect. People started remembering, and we're using the air quotes there, seeing the fire on TV, even though no television footage existed. As you recall, we mentioned that reporters got there too late to even get photographs. Randy Newman wrote the song Burn On about the fire in 1972, and in the liner notes to a later album said he had seen this non-existent TV broadcast.
0: In part because he was the first black mayor of a major U.S. city, Carl Stokes became a very visible presence in all of this coverage, and eventually this blossoming national focus circled back around locally, with Cleveland-area schoolchildren writing hundreds of letters to him asking him to clean up the city's pollution, including the quality of the air and the health of Lake Erie. Most of the letters were from suburban kids who didn't live near the river, and few of them actually mentioned the river, but they advocated in general for a cleaner Cleveland and a cleaner planet. More about how that
1: idea spread from (laughs) uh, elementary school children onward is going to happen after we first pause and have a little sponsor break.
0: Until 1969, none of the Cuyahoga's many fires had gotten much national attention. The Time magazine article and that photograph that was very dramatic are certainly part of why it suddenly got so much more press. But apart from that, the 1969 fire happened at a time of both growing environmental awareness and increasing social activism overall. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which outlined the dangers of the pesticide DDT, had come out in 1962. And while still somewhat controversial, the book became a hugely influential bestseller. And it was a lot of people's first introduction to the idea of environmentalism. And that was just a few uh, years before this river fire. We have, I feel compelled
1: to mention, gotten a lot of requests to cover Rachel Carson and Silent Spring.
0: We have done. Yeah. Uh, we well, we have done, I mean that by saying we got a lot of requests, not that we have written an episode <laughs> on her at this time.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. But just for those of you who might hear that and say, hey, that would be a great episode. We know we've gotten that, yep. that request many Definitely times. We're covered. On the list. <laughs> uh, by 1970, the federal government had heard about the Cuyahoga Fire as well. Louis Stokes, brother of Mayor Carl Stokes and a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, spoke before the House in late 1970, advocating adding language to a flood control bill that would allow the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to study water quality in the Cuyahoga River. He described the fact that it had even caught fire as shameful. He also made it seem like the Cuyahoga was the only flammable river.
0: Yeah, I don't think... (laughs) It's definitely not the only flammable river, but I think that was more of an oversight than like a deliberate effort to make it focus only on Cleveland, but after this point, both Stokes Brothers and the fire itself became a huge visible part of a campaign for federal regulations of both the environment and water quality. Outside the halls of government, the environmental movement was also continuing to grow. The first Earth Day was observed on April 22nd, 1970, and as part of that first Earth Day, which had Uh, celebrations-slash-protests-slash-observances all around the country, college students at Cleveland State University marched from campus to the Cuyahoga River.
1: The National Environmental Protection Act, NEPA, was signed into law on January 1st of 1970. This was one of the nation's first general laws to protect the environment. President Richard Nixon also announced his intention to establish an environmental protection agency, in the spring of 1970. The agency itself was established on December 2nd of that year, and the Clean Water Act followed in 1972. President Nixon actually vetoed the Clean Water Act because of the cost involved, but Congress overrode his veto.
0: This was not the nation's first law specifically related to water pollution. That, at least in the most concrete terms, would be the Federal Water Pollution Control Act of 1948, the Clean Water Act was essentially a series of amendments to that 1948 law. Among other things, it established a structure for regulating the discharging of pollutants into the water. It funded the building of a new, of new sewage treatment plants in places that needed them. And it authorized the Environmental Protection Agency to implement programs for pollution control.
1: Of course, that's not the end of the story. There have continued to be new laws and rules about pollution and water since then, with a continuing focus on weighing the cleanliness and safety of waterways with the impact to businesses to maintain it. This includes the heavily contested 2015 Waters of the United States Rule, also known as the Clean Water Rule, which is currently undergoing a review process through the EPA, the Army, and the Army Corps of Engineers. In spite of the various agencies and regulations, polluted waterways and municipal water systems also continue to make headlines, including the Flint-Michigan water crisis, in which the city has not had clean water since 2014.
0: A number of sources like to sort of well actually the Cuyahoga River Fire of 1969 and its impact on environmental protection laws. They note that cities and states had begun begun doing their own work on cleaning up rivers, lakes, and streams before the federal government ever got involved. The industrial decline in Cleveland also meant there were a lot fewer factories discharging waste into the river, which meant that the river was cleaner than it had been in decades prior.
1: And while all of this is technically true... The Cuyahoga River was still really, really dirty in 1969, as were many other rivers that had been adjacent to a similar cycle of industrial rise and fall. It's also difficult for any one state or municipality to tackle the problem of water pollution on their own, since most bodies of water cross through multiple jurisdictions.
0: As it became a symbol for catastrophe and a need for environmental stewardship, the city of Cleveland also became a national target of embarrassment. Articles in the wake of the fire described it as a crumbling relic of a fading industrial era with white flight leaving the city's downtown as a derelict shell. And while some of the criticism was warranted, we talked about a lot of these issues in the first act of the show, a lot of the coverage really became unnecessarily mean-spirited, with Cleveland being nicknamed the mistake on the lake.
1: Even after years of environmental cleanup and a downtown renewal that started in the 1980s, Cleveland's reputation as a collapsing mess persisted. There is even a joke in the 2003 series finale of Buffy the Vampire Slayer that Cleveland is on a hellmouth.
0: I think a lot of people who grew up after this era like after the Nixon presidency and the, the creation of the EPA and all that stuff. So if you don't remember this specific story about Cleveland, still grew up with the idea that Cleveland was some sort of rundown down laughingstock without really knowing why. Yeah, uh, And this is a lot of why. Uh, and of course, obviously, industry was not the only thing that there was going on in Cleveland before any of this happened. It's just the thing that's most relevant to what we were talking about today. And today... The Cuyahoga River fire of 1969 has been somewhat reclaimed by the city of Cleveland, with a pinch of self-deprecating humor. Great Lakes Brewing Company opened in the Ohio City neighborhood of Cleveland, not far from the river, in 1986, and they brew a Burning River Pale Ale, which launched in 1991, and it has labeling that gives a nod both to the infamous River Fire and to the Clean Water Act that followed it, uh, and. Uh, Great Lakes Brewing Company also hosts Burning River Fest, which is a festival to support the environmental organization Burning River Foundation. Uh, I think a lot of the rest of the world is <laughs> gradually catching up to the idea that that Cleveland has renewed a lot of itself since 1969 when the river caught on fire. At least I hope. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, uh, featured on the Drew Carey Show uh, with much positive... Yeah, uh, um, framing.
0: Yeah. Well, two two dear dear friends of mine who grew up both in Ohio uh, and then lived in Atlanta for many years, which is where I knew them, have just moved back to Cleveland, and they certainly would not have moved <laughs> to a place that was terrible. So yeah, I, I I definitely hope that I mean every place has legitimate criticisms, but uh, I don't think Cleveland deserves to be laughing stock that it was for so many decades
1: yeah I have a good friend that that moved there uh, uh, several years ago it's more than several uh, who had never been there and was kind of like dreading it because still that shadow of, of stuff that we grew up with that it was uh-huh. not a great place and she uh, had this like this is actually a wonderful place to live <laughs> <laughs> uh, so she reports only good things yeah
2: And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
0: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country.